Yeah, thank you, Hillary. I, I actually was going to say and speak on some stuff that she just spoke on. She totally took my thunder. I want to just underline a little bit on the class and the prayer that we're doing on Sunday morning. So as she said, we're in the middle, or not in the middle, we just started it today. So um, we're, in, we're in the beginning parts of a missional living class. And then right after that, we go straight into prayer. And let me just, let me just say, the missional living class... If you want to show up, it'll be great. We have, I think, four more classes that we're going to get to do, and you'll learn a lot. I mean, you're going to see how the Bible forms us and shapes us as missionaries. And as we saw last week, if you are a Christian, you are a missionary. There's no such thing as a Christian who is not a missionary. You might be a very bad missionary. You might be one that has struggled, but you are one. And so what we see is how the gospel forms us, right? So we learn. But then we see the how-tos. How do we do these things? How do we navigate conversations? How do we develop and nurture friendships? But then also where we struggle as people in what it means to be a missionary. So it is basically what we do. But when we switch gears and move into the room and we pray, that's where we are begging God to do. Right? That's where we are asking God to move those what I call the big boulders of our life because that's just stuff that we can't do. We, we, we all know we can start conversations and we can nurture conversations and we can build relationships, but really it's God that comes and changes a heart. And so there is a, a moment where we beg God to do that very thing, where we beg him to come, not just to this church, but other churches. By name we pray for. We pray for people by name in that moment because we want to see God do something real. And this is my, this is my biggest hope. This is my biggest, yeah, my biggest hope is that we will have people become Christians that we have been praying for in that room. That we could say, we've been praying for you for a long time. In fact, let me just tell you, if you're a guest here today, and you're not sure about Christianity, or you're just kind of like peeking around the curtain, you're not even sure about the Bible, you're not sure about anything, you're just here checking stuff out, you need to know that we prayed for you. We beg God that you would be here today. We ask God that you'd be comfortable here today. <laughs> that, that, that you would feel um, the hospitality that we've worked really hard to show you. We, we pray that you would feel not judged, that you would feel welcome here. We're praying the same for people that are guests in other churches for the very first time this morning. And so I just want to invite you. That is an open invitation. And when it comes to the moment of prayer, even if you don't feel like you have um, what it takes in your mind to just pray in public, because I know how frightening that could be for people, just show up and just be a part of it. Just join us. Just agree with us in prayer. In fact, listen, if you have people that you are doing life with in very tight proximity that you are really hoping that God would just change their life, you are really, in your own, in your own time and in your own life, praying for them, and you want us to pray for them as a church, email their name to us. Text their name to us. We'll, we'll pray for them by name. But I'd love it even more if you came and you did it. I'd love it even more if you came and you were a part of that. So, yes, we'd love to have you in the missional living class because I think we can all be better missionaries. We can all be more healthy, integrated missionaries. That includes me, right? Just as I look over the material that I wrote for this, I'm reminded of, man, gosh, it's good to read over this. It's good to brush up on some of these things. It's good to kind of maybe practice the stuff that I preach. But then also to go into another room just right after that and then just believe God that he's going to do something radical, that he's going to see your friends and your relatives and your neighbors become not just Christians, but radical Christians. They just are ferocious with how much they love Jesus, how they see community, how they see mission. We'd love for you to be a part of both of those things. The class, 
in prayer. So I just wanted to kind of maybe highlight that, which, you know, she did a great job of giving you the details on. If you have questions on it, though, be sure to come up to me or Hillary later, and we'd, we'd love to fill you in on that. But listen, if you have a Bible, turn to Romans 8. Romans 8 is going to be our main passage today, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to touch a few passages today. Very different sermon for me. I'm not used to preaching like this. I was telling Ben Dooley I'm gonna, earlier, I'm going to break probably half of my own preaching rules today, but I think it's good to have variety in the playlist. So in Romans 8, this is a really cool passage. It's one of my favorites in the Bible. This is going to be Paul speaking to the Roman church. And he says this, it's going to be in verse 19 is where we'll start. This is the word of the Lord for us today. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Okay, you're going to want to stay there in that passage. I don't know if you know this. I know you've been reading the news, so you probably figured this out, but back in the mid-40s, around 1945 to 1947, there's a group of scientists that got together and they basically built a little club. These are scientists that worked on the Manhattan Project. Some of them lived right up the road in Oak Ridge. They built a nonprofit called the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, and this group formed a visual for the public, for you and me, and it's a clock. They call it the doomsday clock. Like I said, you might have seen it in recent news. And that, that doomsday clock is a visual for how close we are to extinction. It's a visual for how close we are to just burning everything down, right? Midnight representing the apocalypse and the amount of danger we're in being how many minutes we are from midnight. Back in 1991, we were 17 minutes away for midnight, pretty safe, all things given. Last year, we were two minutes for midnight. On Thursday, they moved the clock again like they do in January of every year, and now we are 100 seconds away from the apocalypse. It's the closest ever since the doomsday clock was invented, right? When asked why they advanced it 20 more seconds, they said that the main two reasons, the main two existential threats are nuclear war, being on the brink of nuclear war in several different directions, but most predominantly it would be climate change. So part science, part politics, this is meant to be a wake-up call for you and for me, right? Here's the question. Does the Bible tell you how to feel about that? What does the gospel, the good story of God for mankind through the person of Jesus who came to live, die, and live again for you as a grace to you, totally despite you. Does that have anything to say about the doomsday clock or climate change or global warming or pollution? Does it speak to it at all? I mean, should we be freaking out right now? Or should we be angry right now? Right? I mean, if Jesus were your neighbor and he wakes up and opens up his app and reads about the doomsday clock, what would he be thinking? What would he say? What would he tell you? 
right? See, we've been working really hard in this series that we started a few weeks ago called The Gospel, The Greatest Story Ever Told. And when we started it, we looked at how you interact with the gospel as an individual and how the gospel interacts with you as an individual, how it changes you. We looked at the grandeur and the beauty and the depth and the breadth of the story of God for mankind. Then we followed that up with what the gospel means for us as a people, how it collects us together, and how we can actually image the picture of God by how we do life in tight proximity with each other. Then what we did the next week was we looked at the gospel for the city. We looked at evangelism, missionality. What does it mean for a city to interact with the gospel as we carry it to them? Because they're definitely not coming here. I don't think I could be very thorough in this story of the gospel without talking about how it interacts with places and things. How does the gospel lead you and me to interact with places and things, even the things of culture, right? I mean, I know it's controversial, but your Bible's controversial. And your Bible speaks to controversy, and it does so effectively. And listen, if you don't agree with what I say today, that's totally fine. We could do life together. Feel free to email me later if you have questions or concerns or pushback. I'm, I'm fine with that. But my job is to be thorough. And my job is to point your gaze to Christ, to see his love for you as shown in the Bible, primarily through what he has done for us through Jesus. It's not to recruit to a political agenda. And it's also not to dodge tough areas. So my hope is to show you today that God's giving you a paradigm, a worldview on how to handle the things of culture and even creation itself. And it actually goes all the way back to the garden, right? That's where we receive our first mandate on how to deal with, we'll just say, things, okay? Stay where you're at, but in Genesis 128, very early, 28 verses into our Bible, we see God blessing Mankind, And it says, And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We actually see a few things in those earlier chapters of Genesis, right? We, we see that we are the centerpiece of God's, of God's creation, that of all the good things that God made, we are the goodest. Of all the things that he adores, he adores us the most. It's not prideful to say that. Mankind is the centerpiece of his creation, the celebration of his creation, you can say. We also see that we are created in God's own image. And he is a creator that makes us sub-creators. You are a sub-creator in the image of God. And that's pretty apparent because like God, we like to build languages, build towers, and flag football leagues, and super colliders. We build all kinds of stuff. We also cultivate and govern like God does. God is a sovereign, and he makes us to be sub-sovereigns. That's why we see that word dominion in the passage we just read. He calls us to multiply. He calls us to fill and to take dominion, to govern, to order, to take chaos and bring a curb to it, to renew. And so whenever you and I, whenever we guard this world or groom this world, we reflect God's immense glory as a creator and as a caretaker, as a sovereign, and as a builder, right? That's why whenever we pull weeds and tame our pets, we, we, in a very real way, even if it's a small way, image the glory of God in that moment. Whenever we build companies and legislate 
laws that will enrich mankind, we are in a very real way reflecting the glory of God. When we make music, write poetry, and take beautiful pictures, we are reflecting the glory of God in a very real way. But what does it mean to cultivate creation and culture? What does it mean to do that, to groom it? And why bother if we're 100 seconds away from everything just coming unstitched anyway, right? I mean, that's really the ultimate question. Even if we don't say it out of our mouth, it's got to be rattling around inside of you. Why bother? Why bother doing it? And by the way, when I speak on culture, I've heard this a lot growing up. And and, and, and culture and anthropologists, that's what I went to school for. And one of the first things they teach you is culture is not some ether or some gas or some field that you walk in. And that's typically how we've grown to hear it. Culture is like a, 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 the water that a fish swims in. It, it, it shapes and it influences the fish, but the fish barely even knows it's there. That's not totally true. Culture is made up of goods, right? Things we make. We make culture. Holidays and electric cars and traditions and memes. It's the stuff of life. It's the stuff we make. Some people call it the furniture of life. Even in how we live as inventors and environmentalists and creatives, consumers and activists, how we handle this world and the stuff of this world, it can get complicated. It gets real complicated real fast. I mean, just take, I was reading about this the other day and I thought, man, I don't know if we'll ever find an answer to this. Consider the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, right? This big big chunk of trash floating around out in the ocean. It's actually 100,000 tons of plastic. Plastic is small as like uh, the tip of a pencil all the way to the dashboard of cars they're finding out there, right? Just all kinds of stuff floating around out there. There is enough trash out there for each human on earth to have 300 pieces just for them. That's how much trash is out there. I remember talking about this at dinner with my family and my teenage daughter who's super smart. She says, why doesn't someone just fix that? Just clean that up. It's a good question. I didn't know what to tell her. I don't know. It, it seems like you could just take a giant pool skimmer, right? Load all that stuff up in a boat and ship it off somewhere. Turns out it's a bit more complicated than that, right? And it gets dangerous. Little fish eating the plastic. Big fish eating the little fish. You and I eating those big fish, right? And what that means is, is You're consuming fish that have what's called these forever chemicals in it, all these different versions of polystyrene and polyethylene that are going to be in you for a very long time. Whatever that Hello Kitty phone case was made of, it's been floating around out there, that some cute animal came up and ate, and another cute animal ate that animal, and then you ate the cute animal, now you've got that polyethylene in you. It gets even grosser than that. You know what that plastic is made of? Fossil fuels, right? 98% of plastic made is made from petrochemicals. It's made from oil, crude oil. It's made from the fossil fuels that come from the ground. Dead dinosaurs, dead animals that look funny that you wouldn't recognize today, dead plants. That's what makes up the stuff that makes up the stuff that makes up the stuff that made that phone case that that animal ate that you ate. See how complicated it gets? So we see it. And we already hate the emissions that come from fossil fuels, so mankind declares war on fossil fuels. And so what do we do? We make Teslas and other electrical vehicles and a big step in that direction. Here's the problem. Electric vehicles, they're very heavy because those batteries are super heavy, right? So what do they do to make these electric vehicles super light? They pump it full of plastic. Lots of plastic all over those cars, right? 
And then you plug them in at night where they get power from a power plant that here in Knoxville, Tennessee comes from fossil fuels. Do you see how complicated this is? I mean, where's the fix? It's like one step forward, one step back. It's like everything is touching. Like there's no clear answer. We haven't even talked about deforestation or carbon credits or vaping or cow farts or all the other stuff that you hear about. <laughs> there are no easy answers. That's what we see. And that's from a global scale. If we were to zoom in here in Knoxville, Tennessee, what about culture and the things of this creation? Like gentrification, what do you do with that? Gentrification is interesting. If you don't know what that word means, don't feel odd. It hasn't been around for a whole long time. It just means that society as a whole, we see some dilapidated or condemned either building or piece of the city, and we rejuvenate it. We make the mom-and-pop restaurant a little less mom-and-pop-ish and a little bit cooler, a little bit edgier. We take things that are broken, and we fix them up. And then all of a sudden, it looks cool. And then we start turning an underwear factory that used to be, has been back in the day, rats running everywhere, you know, or some old hotel, and we, t we turn them into condos. We sell them for $500,000 a piece, and all of a sudden it's cool. And now an Aveda salon is down there, and a little soul spin thing going on over here, CrossFit boxes all over the place, you know, and, it, and now it's cool. Now it's gentrified. And on surface, at surface value, it looks like a high-five moment for the church and for people because we've taken something broken, we've taken something useless without any meaning, and we've given it purpose. It looks like the gospel, smells like the gospel a little bit until you realize that property taxes just went through the roof because of all this new, cool stuff. And now people that have lived there for one, two, three generations are having to move because they can't afford to live there anymore. Complicated. It's complicated. And as sub-sovereigns and as caretakers, you and I, we have to deal with these questions. We either handle things and cultivate things to the glory of God or we do it for our own glory. It matters which buildings we flip. It matters why we do it. It matters which activism we endorse. It matters what causes we attach ourselves to and why. Listen. Nothing is simple. Everything is stretched to its limits. Whether you agree that we are 100 seconds from midnight or not, whether you agree that things are as bad as what I just described, at least you would agree with me that everything is begging to be renewed. That this passage in Romans has real value. Everything's begging to be renewed. I mean, when I read Paul in Romans 8, 19, he's, he's painting this picture of creation sitting in high tension. I think of a guitar string or a violin string or some sort of a string that's pulled as tight as it could possibly go and any tighter and it's just going to break. That soon there will be a liberation of something new, right? Something born into a new existence where decay and corruption is replaced by God's glory forever. And that is going to happen. And here's the thing, all of that is purchased by the blood of Jesus. Hear me now when I say this, a lot of work happened on the cross. <laughs> however, many time, however many hours that was where Christ hang on, there was a lot of work that happened. Not, not was only sin defeated. It wasn't just that death was put in the grave. It's that all of creation would be renewed one day to be beautiful, to be what it was always meant to be. And it would be because of the blood of Jesus that makes peace for us. I love the story of the gospel. Listen, our frail reality today 
it's not going to hold Jesus back much longer. Eventually, he's just going to come crashing into our world, and he's going to renew everything. And this is his promise to us. And this is the picture that Romans gives us, this picture of people and places and things, creation, language, art, ideas, technology, all being held under the weight of failure and weakness until Christ comes and renews it, and then nothing will be the same again. Nothing will be the same again. Which begs our original question, so why bother? Why bother working on it? Why bother cultivating it? I mean, it's just scaffolding. It's just put around something. The scaffolding's gonna come down. You don't see people spending a lot of time painting and polishing the scaffolding. Why spend time worrying about water pollution or, or filling the earth with beautiful legislation to enrich people if it's all going to go up and smoke? And listen, even if you're not asking that question around the dinner table, you're not literally saying those words, doesn't it echo around in you sometimes? I mean, when I go to Whole Foods and I throw stuff away, if you've been to Whole Foods, you know where I'm going. You walk up to the trash can and there's not one hole for trash, there's three, right? There's trash, there's recycle, and I can't even remember what the third, like super recycle or something like that. And I always feel like I need a decoder ring because I don't know where my trash goes, right? And there's a piece of me that I want to work really hard and put stuff in the right trash hole. But then there's a piece of me that thinks, this is stupid, what does it even matter? They're probably all going to throw it in the same dumb dumpster anyway. Why even bother with this? I would never say it out of my mouth. I say it in my soul, though. If it's all going to go up in smoke, why care? <laughs> Here's the truth. It's not going to all go up like smoke. God is coming to renew creation. He is not coming to hit delete on it. This is going to be important for us. Can't do a thorough job of looking at the gospel without seeing what the gospel is building for you and me. And I know why you think that God's just going to swipe it all away like in the days of Noah, right? I mean, I'm going to read this to you out of 2 Peter 3. It'll be up on the uh, screen. Don't, don't worry about turning there. If you're in Romans, that's where I want you to be. 2 Peter 3.10, one verse. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Okay? So what we see is stuff is going to burn, stuff is going to melt, stuff is going to go away. But God's intent here is not to crumple up creation and throw it away. It's to come and renew it. That burning fire that Peter's talking about is not a destructive fire, it's a purifying one. It's an exposing one. It's going to expose all the stuff that we're so proud of. It's going to lay it bare before our very eyes. And when will this happen? When Jesus says so. Not when the doomsday clock speculates. When Jesus says so, and not one second sooner. Listen, that doomsday clock, it could be one millisecond away. And they could all be sweating up a storm. Jesus is not intimidated by that. It stops when he says it stops. Everything ends when he says it ends. How do we know this? In Colossians, it says this, Paul it says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, and this is important for us, and in him all things hold together. And then the author of Hebrews says later on, he, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
This is amazing to me. We learn a couple things. We learn, first of all, everything that was ever made from the Smokies to the polar ice caps, everything that was ever made was made by Jesus, made right through Jesus. The second thing we learn is he tells everything to stay put by his very statement, by his very, the power of his words. Creation will never step out of line until Jesus says so because he is the sovereign commander of all of creation. It will stay doing what it is supposed to do. It will stay in line until he is ready to renew it and reveal his full glory. Why am I telling you all of this? Because we should care for this world, and we're going to look at that here in just a moment, but you should stop worrying about how the world is going to end. You don't have to worry about that. Don't let the media interpret the end of history for you. Is global warming going to get worse? I don't know, maybe, maybe not. Depends on who you talk to, right? I have opinions. I reserve them for Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners when it's appropriate. (laughs) But listen, no matter your views on the lifespan of earth, it's not the end of the world until Jesus says it is, right? And at that time, he will refine everything that we are so proud of, that we worship. He will refine everything, and he will make room for paradise, God will make his creation and our culture, this is important, creation and our culture, what it always should have been, what it always could have been without sin. That's what it means. Side note, not only that, but even your own bodies, your glorified state, when it has been renewed, when it looks like it always could have looked like without sin, it will be in a physical body. And you will be beholding a physical Jesus in a physical body, standing on a physical earth, okay? This will be new for some of you. Hang on, right? This is what Job says in Job 19. He says, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Listen, heaven will be what this life always should have been had sin never entered the picture, except it will be better than even that. It will be better than even that. All of this to say that there is no biblical truth at all behind the idea that there is going to be some emergency evacuation where we all seep out of our physical bodies like some vapor, right? We're all in some disembodied state in ecstasy, floating around, bumping into each other, I guess, and listening to worship music on loop. That's not biblical. It's weird. It's not biblical. God's plan for his church is to establish his church, his sons and his daughters, as the new princes and princesses who will rule underneath the royal ruler and king who is Jesus inside of a new heaven and a new earth by his blood that he created by his blood as he straightened out all things crooked and all things bent. Everything that has been beautiful in this world that we trampled, whether it is a baby in a womb or a martyr, everything that has been beautiful that we have trampled will be lifted and celebrated. Everything that we have worshiped that is against the glory of God will be trampled. It'll be torn down. Our best attempts to rule and govern each other will have to move aside for better rule, better legislation. Even the colors we see today are going to be monochromatic when compared to the colors that we will see 
as are the sounds that we will hear with our very ears we couldn't even comprehend today. The work that we will be involved in, the governing that we will be involved in, will have no more weeds or thorns or thistles that fight back. Mourning will be replaced. Tears will never be shed. War and all of its weapons will be cashed in. People will no longer live on the margins because there will no longer be racism. There will no longer be sexism. There will no longer be poverty. There will be no regrets, no shame, no loneliness, no addictions, no anxiety, and no desire to leave. That's what's waiting when we finally find this place that we call heaven. Not some place in the clouds. Not some place off in outer space. I hate to kick a sacred cow or two over, but listen, heaven, that's where God is. Heaven is where God is. Delete the idea that heaven is somewhere far from God, just somewhere better than here. I want you to think bigger. Heaven is where God is, and he's actually bringing heaven to us here in this renewed place. I mean, you'll see this place when you read through Revelation, you get, I think, to the 21st chapter, I think, and you have John saying, an angel brought him up on a mountain, and he looks out, and then the city of God descends and comes to us. In other words, we don't go to heaven. He will come to us. We will have renewed bodies, renewed minds, and have a renewed creation and adore our king as we enjoy him forever, even with beautiful culture in a place where his glory finds simply no edges. But just as Habakkuk says, that the glory will cover, his glory will cover the earth as the water covers the sea. Culture in heaven will look different. I think it'll be recognizable, but I imagine in the same way our bodies will be, right? You'll kind of recognize it's your body, but not totally recognize because it has no effects of sin on it. And this might be surprising to some of you, that pieces of our culture will show up in heaven, right? This is where we get that. We get it in a few places in the Bible. If you read on your own, Isaiah 60 is a great place to go. But also in Revelation 21, there's a key passage that I think will be helpful. John says, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will not be night. And then this, they're meaning the kings, the influencers, these are the shapers and the makers of humanity. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Mankind is going to bring its best, our best. Heaven is going to be stuffed with culture that has reached its fullest potential, its most robust potential. What is good will be made better. What is a cultural dead end will be burned up. It'll be left. I can't imagine what Knoxville is going to look like. What parts of our city are going to be improved because they're beautiful pieces of culture inside of the culture and what parts are just going to go away? Or even our country. I thought about this all week. What parts of our culture can we imagine seeing in the end of all ends? I think college football will have an eight-game playoff system. That's me personally. (laughs) I think TikTok is going away. (laughs) I have a long list of stuff I think is going away, actually. But this is what I know. Every place, everything we encounter today is either going to be renewed or it is going to be rejected. Our bodies, trees, languages, everything. 
technology, computers, tacos, CrossFit, you fill in the blank. It doesn't matter to me. Everything is either going to bend and bow to glorify God or it will go away. Which does bring us back again to the original question. Why bother taking care of everything that's falling apart then? We keep coming back to the same question. I have a couple key answers I think might be helpful for you, and it might actually bring some meaning to your life in a very real way. One is it just answers the urge in us all to fulfill our mandate. It answers something deep inside of every human. We're designed to take pleasure whenever we have good dominion over something, whenever we've cultivated something well, whenever we've built something, groomed something. There's, it's in us. It's like it's tattooed on our soul to enjoy that moment. When you weed the flower bed or reconcile the financial books or empty your inbox or regrout the shower or whatever you do, there's a moment where you stand back and you look at it and you say, yes. You feel a sense of achievement. Is it dopamine or serotonin? Yeah, but God made those, right? I mean, there is an imprint in us that even biochemically we react to good dominion exercised. It's true for all of us. When I was on my sabbatical this last summer, I think in my third month of being off, we have this room in our house. That's a, it's a, it's, we call it the utility room. I don't know what it's really called. It's the room that has your hot water heater and your air conditioner. We, I keep my tools in there. I might go in that room three times a month, maybe, right? But I had some extra supplies laying around. I thought, you know, I'm going to put walls up in there. I'm going to build the walls and finish them off and make them look real beautiful. No one's ever going to go in there, but it looks nice. And there was a piece of me, and I knew the whole time, that in 150 years, this house isn't even going to be here, and I'm taking the time to do this. But I enjoyed the process of taking raw materials and building something beautiful with utility in it. Why? Why would I enjoy something like that? Why do you enjoy stuff like that? Why do you enjoy finishing a beautiful meal? Why do you enjoy finally finish putting the fence up? Why do you enjoy these things? It's because God put it in you to take dominion, to fill, to multiply, to take charge, to execute, to order chaos. He put it in you. Listen, if you're a homemaker in here or a cubicle dweller or a student, you were designed to enjoy the effects of caretaking and dominion. You were enjoyed for that. I mean, you were, you were built to really stand back and admire and image God in that moment. I think another reason it's important is because it demonstrates the gospel. I need to be careful here. It demonstrates the gospel. It does not preach the gospel, okay? I have to say that because I know that there are beautiful men and women of God, great churches in town that are doing a great job. They have a theology I'm not super fond of, and I don't see biblical precedent for it, and that is that if we were to take, let's say, a building and refurbish it, gentrify it, that in some way, shape, or form, this new building that serves a purpose preaches the gospel to people that are far from Christ, that don't understand the gospel, but now they do. I disagree. I, I, I think we preach the gospel, that faith comes by hearing. Now, that beautiful moment might demonstrate what we're saying. We might be able to marry it with what we're saying, but that building doesn't preach to anybody. Stuff doesn't preach. People preach. But it does walk alongside of our message. It puts credibility to our message. That I believe. I see evidence that it glorifies God to take something broken and make it whole again. It paints a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of brokenness and uselessness finally, finally given purpose and wholeness. But if you detach that from the spoken gospel, it's just a cool building. Right? Listen, if you're an activist or an environmentalist here, the most valuable part of your endeavor to caretake 
The most valuable thing that you do is, is because God loves it and you are able to image him by loving it as well. And that by restoring something, you are in fact imaging and echoing and painting a picture of what he will do someday that was paid for by the blood of Jesus. He is going to renew everything. Until then, we just clean out the fridge and the garbage patch and the Pacific Ocean and we pass legislation and we do it all to the glory of God. All of it to the glory of God. I think the third big question it answers whenever we say, why bother caretaking what is falling apart today is it demonstrates our love for our neighbor. Jesus says to love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I think when we fail to take care of the world or take care of culture or build culture that really matters, when we fail to do these things, it affects two groups of people the most. The first is the marginalized. They always take the hit. They always take the hit, long before, long before most of us will. The second is the future, the future generations before us. So I'll just say this, and then I'm going to stop before I get into a ton of trouble. I think the church ought to be the single biggest force of change in the world when it comes to technology and art and civil leadership and environmentalism. I think we should set the pace, right? Not because the doomsday clock tells us to, not for all the bloated political reasons that I hear, but because we love what God calls good. We love, I mean, the, the globe itself, it just take culture out for a moment, just creation. This is the stage of the gospel. The gospel played out on the stage of creation. God saw it. He built it. He says it's good. That's enough for me. But we can also depict what God one day will do, and we can demonstrate a gospel that matches our words. We can celebrate a good creator and a glorious recreator. But this is where our problem enters the picture. We tend to not cultivate creation for God's glory, but we consume it for our own. Dominion becomes another person's problem, right? Another person's issue. Creation can become disposable because we see it as scaffolding and temporary, so we don't handle it with care. I mean, why paint the house if it's just going to come down? That's what we think to ourselves. The problem with this worldview is self is right in the middle of it. Not God's glory, not your neighbor, not the future, not the gospel, but self. It's easy for self. So we end up living a life where we don't just use resources, we abuse them. We don't take care, we exploit. We don't cultivate, we ravage. We might create culture, but it's usually dead-end culture meant for self-consumption instead of the glory of God. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's another problem. might not be a problem for as many people in this room, but it's good that you know we can tend to deify creation. Placing creation above people, above people who are the centerpiece of creation. But can I just say that one life is more valuable than the spotted owl of Nowheresville. Lives are more valuable than a million floating pieces of plastic in the ocean or whatever dolphin is that ate it. I'm just going to say people matter most. People matter most. Hear me carefully when I say this. The Bible plainly teaches this in Genesis. And Jesus came to die and straighten out all that is bent, and he had people in mind primarily. People, right? I had flashbacks of going, when I was putting this together, flashbacks of going to Haiti um, with Dr. Clint, Miss Christine, and Sean. We went out there to do some work. It was interesting to see everybody walking around with these giant plastic jugs on their head, 
full of water and plastic gutters on the outside of their huts to catch the rainwater so that they could drink water. I mean, we could go ahead and take fossil fuels and plastic away from a people like that. They will have no meds. They will have no contact with society. They will have nothing even to carry water around. We're throwing them into the Stone Age. Yeah, we spill oil in the ocean. We do it all the time. And we dump exhaust in the atmosphere. And yet we also power and nurture growing cities. And we invent medicine. And we 3D print cars. And we turn sand into computer parts and silicon chips. We do all of these things. Just be careful that you don't view people as some plague to creation that must be eradicated so that Mother Earth makes it. People matter most. So yeah, be an environmentalist, be an activist. But be a gospel, be a gospel-centered one. Be a gospel-shaped one. Because when the well-being of mankind collides with the planet, choose people. Choose people. And I know what some of you are thinking. It's the same thing I think, but isn't that just punting the football down the field a little bit? Because we might be helping people today, but we're hurting people tomorrow, right? I mean, you had to think that. What about people in 100 years? There's maybe truth to that. I get you. I hear you. I don't even know. I know we're responsible for people down the road. I think we're more responsible for the people that are around us right now. Right now. Here's an example. I read a week ago that Germany is about to spend 44 billion, 44B, billion dollars over the next few years alone to cut its CO2 emissions. When they do, it's estimated that they will drive global rise in temperatures, not just Germany's. I mean, in all fairness, global. Okay? By that 44 billion, they will reduce the global rise in temperature by 0.0001 degree over 100 years. Let me say that again. 44 billion dollars so that in 100 years, our temperature will be 0.0001 degree cooler. Other experts say $44 billion would curb, if not stop, tuberculosis in every single developing country in the world, saving more than 10 million people. I'm just saying they are both valuable. They're both valuable. I'm going to say one is more valuable. One is more valuable. So we caretake and we cultivate this place and the things we stuff it with, and we do so to the glory of God. And when we find conflict, we choose the gospel first. We choose people first. Put our priorities where they need to be. So I think there's room for us to repent whenever we read passages like Romans, which doesn't always seem very obvious when we read a passage like that. But just ask yourself, as we finish the service here in a moment, as we take communion, as we sing, as we pray, where is it that you find yourself consuming instead of cultivating? Where is it that you do that? Building and dominating for your own glory instead of God's. Where have you been short-sighted? My goal isn't to get you to go to Whole Foods after this and buy an aluminum water bottle and stop eating meat. Not my goal today, okay? But I want you to see that you have an identity as a sub-sovereign and a sub-creator. We have this opportunity to enjoy Jesus and paint a picture of a renewed world for a hurting people. Because listen, the elections are going to come around shortly, and you're going to hear a bunch of talk about climate change. A lot of good and very different strategies. Not one of them will have the gospel in mind. Not one of them will have the gospel in mind. You're not going to hear that. Ask yourself questions. What am I, what, what, what around me am I failing to take care of? What am I failing to take care of? Where am I being lazy? Where have I taken what God has called good and beautiful and just made it garbage? Ask questions. Where do I place things above people? 
Where is the whale more valuable than a fetus for me? Am I gripped with the fear and the thought of the apocalypse? I think that's a question for some people in here. I don't know, how big is your Jesus? Do you really believe Colossians and Hebrews when he says that he is the sovereign commander? Stops when he says. All the, all the electrons spinning right now, it stops when he says they stop. And there's room for us to celebrate in a, in, a, in a passage like this. Because listen, our home is not here. And yet here will be our home one day. <laughs> no need to hold tightly to this place. But there is need to invest in it, cultivate it, grow it for his glory. Go ahead and stand with me. I'm going to read a quote to you as we finish this out. This is from the fourth century, this quote. No doomsday clock back then. Augustine, he says this, Are you surprised that the world is losing its grip? That the world is growing old? Think of a man. He is born, he grows up, he grows old. Old age has its complaints. It's coughing, shaking, failing eyesight, anxiety, tired. A man grows old. He is full of complaints. This world is old. It is full of tribulations. Do not hold on to the old man, the world. Do not refuse to regain your youth in Christ who says to you, the world is passing away. The world is losing its grip. The world is short of breath. Do not fear. Your youth shall be renewed as an eagle. Father, I thank you for this time. Lord, and when we are on this planet that is short of breath and we create culture to the best of our ability, Lord, I know that when you died on the cross and you shed your blood and you broke yourself, just as we show with the communion, as you did that, you didn't do it just, just, you did not do it just to remove sin from us or just to remove death from us, but you did it to create a new heavens and a new earth that would be a part of a new reign and a new rule. It gives me great hope and it gives me great joy even to invest in what seems to be meaningless here. Lord, that I could actually order and build and cultivate something here that nobody will ever see, and I could do it for your glory. I could clean a little patch of my property that no one will ever see, except for you. So Lord, we just pray that you would give us a big, grand view of the scope of your gospel. Not just what it does for us, not just what it does for community, or evangelism, but what it does for all of your creation. And even the bits and pieces of the culture that we, in some meager way, patch together, that you will look at some of it and you will elevate it or you will do away with it. Lord, that we would have this scope. And that when we invest in the city, when we invest in things, in places, we can do so to the glory of God, mindful of your gospel the whole time. Lord, help us see where we fall short in that. I could find so quickly my mind going political rather than biblical. So easy for me just to, to listen to somebody else tell me why I should believe something instead of resourcing how you look at it. Help us all as a church not fall into that trap. It's such an easy trap to fall into. And Lord, we thank you for just your gospel as it goes before us and how beautiful it is and how much it provides for us. A new heavens and a new earth. How amazing. How amazing, Father. 
You are very good and sweet and kind and thoughtful and caring for us. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. It's in your Lord, that they, even if they walked in with a heart that does not feel, that does not see the blood on their hands and then the blood on the cross, Father, that you would show them exactly what that looks like. That maybe they've never had a grand vision of who you are, but now they do. Lord, that you would even be changing hearts. And Father, I just feel compelled to pray for those in this room with bruises from whatever the last situation is that they threw both feet into. Ah, Lord, the hesitancy, the slowness to do something like that again. It's real. So Father, that you would give us, I guess, the the confidence that yes, we are free to give all of ourselves to community, even knowing ahead of time that we're likely to get burned. Because we're imperfect people working with imperfect people. But knowing that because the the reward is more of you, we're, we're more than willing to come in last place, more than willing to be lowered, more than willing to not be invited, to be ghosted, more than willing to be left in the dust because we get more of you. Lord, help us invest not a piece of our life, but all of our life into each other. Help us prefer each other and even the city over ourselves, Lord. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.